I'm Ambivalently Yours, and this is Rebelliously Tiny, a podcast about the subtle emotions that draw us together. For this episode, my co-producer Hannah McCaslin and I have invited a very special guest to do a podcast takeover and address a question that we've all been asking ourselves lately. Enjoy. Here is the question that inspired this week's episode. What brings you joy when you are fighting for social justice? My name is Sunny Adcock. I'm a 20-year-old from Sydney, Australia, with a penchant for all things books, intersectional feminism, and pop culture. I'm an avid reader, a writer, an editor, and a podcast host. As a mixed-race white Australian and African-American woman who is a beneficiary of both colorism and privilege, I believe the work of ending white supremacy is both urgent and overdue. However, like the work of any social justice movements, the pursuit of equality can often leave you feeling exhausted, hopeless, and in desperate need of joy. Today I'm joined by Binta Yard and Francoise Nestor, two women who are not only well acquainted with this feeling, but who have also provided me with some much needed joy in my life. I decided to invite them on this episode because as two of my closest friends and as fellow black women living in Australia, their perspectives and experiences have been invaluable to me over the years. I would like to acknowledge that this episode is being recorded on the land of the Gadigal and Bidjigal peoples who traditionally occupied the Sydney coast. We respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and future. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this episode contains the names of a deceased person. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare. Audrey Lord, black lesbian poet and author in a burst of light in 1988 after her second cancer diagnosis. So ladies, what comes to mind when you hear the word political warfare? Do you think the last three months fit the bill? What has impeded on your ability to find joy during Black Lives Matter? When I think of political warfare, I don't know, I think of it in the extreme sense, like, yeah, proper civil wars, like, I think back to, like, um, Hong Kong when they were rioting, I think that's, like, political warfare, but I think these last three months have definitely counted as political warfare, because it's the reaction of the people against society, basically. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I feel as though political warfare as distinguished from other warfare really does kind of manifest itself in the homes, in the minds of people. It doesn't necessarily have to take on a violent form um, and it doesn't, you know, require a military budget. It's the fight of the people. Um, And in this case, it's the fight of the people for, you know, basic human rights and just for, um, to be acknowledged by their respective countries as equal people. I feel like political warfare in a sense is even more powerful than, you know, modern day warfare as we know it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it really does take a lot of altruism. It takes a lot of kind of self-awareness to be able to put yourself on the line and fight for something that's bigger than you. And to see how many people have done that this year, unconditionally fighting for something that they believe in no matter what happens to them is, it's incredible. Absolutely. And I think that... You know, Black Lives Matter has existed for a long time and even predating this particular movement has been the fight to end white supremacy, the fight for liberation for black and brown folks. But I feel like uh, this particular iteration that was sparked obviously by the murder of George Floyd 
has been a really massive one for the movement. This iteration has been felt worldwide. Obviously, this podcast, this recording of this episode, I should say, takes place in Australia, um, even though the epicenter of this movement is in America, and yet we're feeling the effects everywhere. And I'm curious, you know, as two beautiful, young, strong black women who are activists in their own right, how has this particular iteration taken a toll on you? Has it felt like that political warfare that we were just talking about? Yeah, I felt like we were, I felt like I was right in it this time. Like it wasn't just we were viewing it from afar. It's definitely worldwide this time. And I don't know, I found it extremely exhausting and draining watching it on the news. Because much like the coronavirus being on the news every second, it was like that for a solid month. That's all we saw. Every time I flicked the channel, SBS, ABC, didn't matter what channel I turned to, it was always about the the riots. And it just became so exhausting and to the point where I wanted to have a break from it and I would, wouldn't would be able to do, you know, my fun pastimes of going, scrolling through Instagram. Mm-hmm. That alone was just flooded with constant content about it and it was just hard to get a break from it. Yeah, I feel like I completely agree. I feel like this time, I mean, we've never lived through like such a civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. I think the last one like that came close to this was like in 1968. Um, and so in 2020 we've surpassed that and like we're living through like the biggest civil rights movement ever um i feel though that in some senses it was a bit harder being in australia because i or none of us had the option of physically going out and joining the riots joining the protests and kind of physically and kind of like in a way that you could see put out good work to use yeah so it was a lot of like internalized reading a lot of posts absorbing a lot of negative energy a lot of negative information but having no outlet for it because there was one protest Mm. at best um and you know that in itself was such a big kind of issue that we knew there wasn't going to be another one um so i don't feel like we really had a way to mobilize ourselves like they did in america or like they did in other countries um which definitely made it a lot harder um being part of it because it's as close to us as it is for any other black person in this world but we definitely didn't have the opportunity to I guess show how much it meant to us Mm. um on like a grand sense absolutely and I can relate to that so much you know my particular ancestry is that I'm African-American and white Australian and so my black side of the family lives predominantly in the United States in LA and New York and you know being someone with that sort of identity but really feeling a part of two different political contexts was a really wild and extreme thing that Mm. became so prevalent during this time because I had my black side of the family marching and protesting for their life in the States Mm. and then my white side of the family um, extended that is making sort of uh, (laughs) on the nose jokes about the situation and not taking it seriously and buying into misinformation and propaganda spread by conservative news channels who were entirely removed from the situation and were responsible for spreading a lot of um, a lot of lies and for showing really biased um, biased assessments of the situation, I guess. Um, and those sorts of things can be really harmful. And so it really makes you feel so moved when you want to be on the scene. You want to be where, you know, the protesters are being jailed, where they, you know, are coming and risking their lives every day. You want to be a part of that to show your solidarity. And yet you're kind of confronting your own smaller battle in Australia, yeah. and particularly because Australia has yet to confront its problem with racism. Exactly. exactly. And we had, we just, I, uh, we had like this double 
double uh, thing going on. We can sympathise with our brothers and sisters in America, mm-hmm. and yet we also have our own issues in, in Australia. So it was just like all around, mm-hmm. we were just yeah. getting it left, right, Absolutely. and centre. So, and I feel like America, to an extent, although they haven't done much about it, they know how bad they are. Yeah. And we all know how bad America is when it comes to mm-hmm. you know um, racial equity and just race relations. But we don't have that conversation about Australia, and that's because it's um, it's a multicultural society, but it's a predominantly white society. Mm-hmm. And so when you don't have a strong or a large black population, then there's less opportunity for those two cultures to clash yeah. and to connect. And so Australia mistakes that for us having really good race relations. Yeah. But when you're one of the only black people in the room and you hear what white or non-black people say about the black community both here yeah. and overseas, you realise that they're just as racist, they just haven't had the outlet for it yeah. because yeah. they are predominantly in classrooms and workplaces that are filled by mostly non-black people. Exactly. Um, and then you match that with the fact that not only do we have the black American community, because there are African Americans who live here, yeah. but we also have our own incredibly racist and unreconciled history with the indigenous community here. And so it is, it's two struggles that are different, but are also completely interconnected yeah. because the root of our problem is white supremacy. So the conversation that has been imported over here is really multifaceted and it has not been one the country has been ready for. And so I think for us being one of the few trying to bring that to their attention was a really emotionally taxing job. It was exhausting. I feel as though as well the fact that we could see kind of, you know, silver linings in the US with, you know, George Floyd's murderers being charged and the no knock warrant um, you know, being implemented on the flip side, our government wouldn't even acknowledge that we had a race problem and told us. On January 26, 1788, Australia was invaded by Britain. Captain James Cook declared Australian land terra nullius, no man's land. Despite the existence of over 400 nations estimated to consist of over 750,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. First Nations people are the oldest population of humans living outside of Africa. The colonisation of Australia created mass cultural genocide, displacement, dispossession and violence, including but not limited to the stolen generation where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were forcibly removed from their families under federal law and were assimilated into white society, the purpose of which was to eliminate those communities from white Australia entirely. Today First Nations people experience shorter life expectancy, higher rates of infant mortality, higher rates of imprisonment, poorer health and lower levels of education and employment. In 2015, their rate of suicide was double that of the general population. When African-American man George Floyd was murdered by police officers on May 25th in 2020, Australia couldn't help but point out that Aboriginal man David Dungay Jr.'s last words were also, I can't breathe. He died in police custody in 2016. First Nations people remain the most incarcerated people in the world. Does he even live in the same country we do? Yeah, like our Prime Minister telling us to, you know, go back inside and stop complaining that we don't have an issue, that we didn't have slavery, which is Uh false. It's false, that's all you can say. It's false. So seeing, you know, um, kind of our cries not being heard because Mm -hmm. we don't hold a large enough minority in this country, was really disheartening because when you're on Instagram and you know you're reading kind of you're in the world of America Mm. it was kind of um 
reassuring it was exciting it was taxing but it was mm-hmm. quite exciting i feel it was momentum. Yeah. yeah and then you go outside and you realize that none of the stuff that you're seeing happening in the world is happening in mm, australia yeah, yeah. no changes have been made the Absolutely. man that we were marching for david dungay jr his his murderers still haven't been arrested they didn't even reopen an investigation so i mean and they also found out today um through my lecture today that that family had to fight so hard to get video release of that as well like it's just Mm. they're being silenced and like black people all over this country constantly get silenced and we don't have a large enough community or Mm -hmm. enough solidarity between each other to actually make you know, palpable change. I think also it comes to the fact of like education, and I say this because I want to do teaching, but like I know when I was in school, you think about Aboriginal history or even black history as this faraway thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the American civil rights thing, oh, well, that's over in America. So you kind of disassociate from it. Yeah. And then with Aboriginal history, the way that it's it's taught, it's it's almost taught like it's happened centuries ago when in fact Australian history, Australian, the country itself is very young mm. and people don't realise like Aboriginals weren't considered human until 1967 and how many years mm. ago? That's not that long ago. All of our um, parents were born by then. All of my, that's my, when my parent, my mom was born. Mm. So I always think about that mm. and I'm like, this is within our grandparents' like living memory. Mm. So I think that's the issue with Australia is they just think it was so we've progressed so far mm. from there, mm. but it actually hasn't. They just think because they're still not taking children in the stolen generation that it's not happening anymore and that uh, indigenous issues, that's not a problem, yeah. but it is. And let's be real, is. they still are taking children just through a foster care system mm. that unfortunately targets in indigenous kids we don't want to get randomly yeah i think it's particularly difficult as well that being in the australian context you know like i said there's two separate conversations two separate interconnected conversations around how we treat black people in general whether that's african-american african-americans or anyone from the african diaspora but then also our indigenous community here but the problem is, is that, you know, Australia is so happy to watch everything unfold in America and to kind of almost use that to prompt, you know, interesting political debates um, and sort of philosophical conversations, but they don't realise that it is their problem here and that, you know, mm. we are miles behind in the conversation. And so I think then when you are one of few who is has lived their whole life aware of, you know, the hypocrisy of Australia and its supposed multiculturalism, mm. it means that I think, I know I felt an immense pressure to speak up and be the bearer of bad news to mm. white Australia that, hello, we are a racist exactly. country. I'm sorry yeah. to wake you up from your slumber, but now it's time to get mm. to work. And so when you are holding this knowledge because this knowledge has been informed by one your ancestors struggle your daily experience readings and just the way that we've observed other countries um we are in a position where we are more informed on the matter than the rest of australia and so that almost puts us in this um really taxing position Mm. where we have to do the bulk of the work yeah in terms of Just teaching people basics like empathy, Mm -hmm. teaching them how to listen, how to respect other human beings, basics that are preluding a much more important conversation about what is racism and how do we solve it. We can't even get into the sort of the um, 
the grassroots work of implementing structural change because we're still trying to explain the basics and not only are we doing that but we have to do it in a way that is palatable Mm. where our pain can be consumed easily where we're not coming across as too angry or too exclusionary because it makes them uncomfortable makes them uncomfortable (laughs) and they don't want to listen we've never had their attention before and now that we have we only have it for a second so it's like we have to be grateful that we have it and we can't waste it because otherwise we risk losing it exactly so I think that just contributes to that emotional labor. And I'm wondering how personally in your lives, how did that emotional labor affect you both mentally and physically? Because it's incredibly stressful. Mm. I remember when it was first happening, like I, it was, I swear it was towards the end of the semester for uni and I had so many essays coming up and I just could not focus for the life of me. Like every time I tried to sit down on my computer, my thoughts were always Instagram, like, and usually I use Instagram as a procrastination tool and I couldn't even do it for that because it was just information coming flying at me and then not to mention it was just irritating having people messaging me being like oh is it really like this and I'm like open your goddamn eyes mm. like where have you been like they they just don't understand and when I tell them my personal stories like I can't believe that's happened to you and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, this is Australia. This is Australia and you're just not opening your eyes. Exactly. And that's why it it infuriates me that it took to George Floyd for this situation to explode. I spoke about this today in my class as well. And I was like, I've seen plenty of similar videos. We've seen plenty of similar cases to this. And only now, he's not the first and he's not the last. And only now people are suddenly caring. And I just don't get why. And, and yeah, people, like all my friends are coming to me and they're saying, I'm so shocked that this is what happened. And I'm like, really? Because I'm not. Yeah, exactly. It's the most obvious thing plainly seen to me. If you're shocked, then you're part of the problem. The problem like, because you're not educated simple as that. I feel like as well, like what you were saying before is really interesting. And I wrote about it in a piece that I wrote um, during the protest that it's kind of this constant conflict of okay so this white person has come to me basically asking me to educate them on stuff that i'm i'm not a teacher i'm not an educator it's not my job we're not a professor but they so rarely listen that i need to be grateful and take this opportunity that they even care what i have to say but also i'm tired and i don't feel like it's my job so it's constantly this battle of okay do i educate them or like do they educate themselves because I'm not their parent, I'm not their teacher. Um, I feel like, yeah, as well with Instagram and social medias, it kind of became this coping type mechanism. And it was like, we were in survival mode where I felt like if I wasn't on Mm. Instagram and I wasn't watching the news and I wasn't, Mm. you know, keeping up with current affairs, I was doing a disservice to my entire race. And I I didn't want to miss another black man being shot or a black woman being killed. I didn't want to miss, you know, um, protesters being arrested Arrested. illegally. I didn't want to allow myself to distance myself from the struggle that my brothers and sisters were going through Mm. purely because I had the luxury of living in a place where it wasn't as in your face Mm. um so I think that's why as well it became a very kind of taxing time because a lot of us I know we spoke about it wouldn't we wouldn't allow ourselves to just breathe because we felt like it was our job to be on the ball Mm -hmm. all the time 24 7 like I would go to sleep thinking about it I would wake up thinking about Mm. it like I can't name how many times I cried about it it was Mm. Not to mention, I, I had, like, people from my old high school messaging me. Like, there was this one girl who 
was making so many terrible posts and you know your typical all lives matter fashion and you know so and the, you know the worst thing was we had indigenous girls in our youth group as well and she they were all trying to educate her and yeah. then i get a message being like you're a friend can you drop in and you know try and educate her but there was just no way of doing it because yeah. she was just so ignorant and so um stubborn and wanted to stick to her ways so i was like you know what i give up i just there's no point and that's when i realized i'm like i'm not going to sit here and educate people mm-hmm. there are plenty of re- resources out in the world here is all the resources do your reading exactly. We're so open your eyes in this world where we have google at our fingertips <laughs> exactly. and you're asking little old me for education go right? to the shopping center and open your eyes i'm sure you'll see something you'll be Honestly. like oh yes this is this is the thing and that i always like to tell people is that Obviously, in being, you know, part of a certain community, we have lived experience to rely on. Mm -hmm. But lived experience isn't the only thing that has informed our knowledge of racism. We don't inherently know about, you know, how racism as a structure, as an institution, as an all-consuming force works just because we're born black or biracial. Exactly. We don't suddenly wake up woke and have the knowledge. I mean, we've seen Kanye West. So <laughs> what evidence do you need? I know this because I wanted to know more. I saw this was a problem. I either experienced it or my loved ones experienced and I wanted to do something about it. And so I Googled. Fortunately, in this day and age, the majority of us have access to Google. We have access to yeah. libraries. And people who are paid to educate others have written far better resources than I could ever try and explain from word of exactly. mouth. You don't even need to read a 50-page journal, mm. you know, that's peer-reviewed. You they can, have videos so now, YouTube, like, there's everything. TED mm-hmm. Talks, there's so much resources, podcasts. You can be cleaning your mm-hmm. kitchen while listening to a podcast and educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have to read. Like, I think people expect this, that we go to the library and read I think books. it's just lazy. It's, just because lazy. People, it is lazy. Like, because it's a lot quicker to make somebody do the work for you than for you to seek out what to read, what to watch and what mm-hmm. to listen to and to make an informed judgment yourself. People don't want that. And I just think it's selfish when we were going through our own trauma at that mm-hmm. time because so many racist sentiments had come out we had seen you know one of our people being killed and Mm. not brought to justice that was traumatic and so to be dealing with that trauma and then having to hold somebody else's hand through it (laughs) was excruciating and i just want to quickly um before we move on tap um kind of go back to something you both you know articulated about that feeling of needing to be on social media yeah and i felt like it was just being it was forcing ourselves to be in a constant state of outrage yeah. because we yeah. knew we were only going to see bad things, but we, but we felt did anyway. <laughs> we felt the obligation to respond the mm-hmm. minute something happened because, of course, people were going to look to us. Yeah, and it also felt like, at least for me, that if we didn't, you know, step in, control the narrative, and set things straight, then things would go out of hand because exactly. we couldn't trust white allies or mm-hmm. um, non-allies to handle the conversation with the maturity, the empathy, and the compassion that it required. And it it, it leads to something that, um, you know, one of the lovely um, co-producers of this podcast, Hannah, um, you know, so poignantly phrased for me is is doom scrolling, which is is defined as that, the the tendency to continue to surf or scroll through bad news, even though that news is saddening, disheartening, or depressing. I'm glad that word exists. It's doom scrolling, I think, just really sums up all of June and July for us. Essentially. Um, And and that's so taxing on your mental health because Mm. you forget that there's real life, and that's not to say this isn't real life, but there's real life where there are people who love you. Um, 
there is real life that demands that you get proper rest, that yeah. you feed yourself. Um, unfortunately, the chaos of the internet, the chaos of white supremacy goes on whether or not we're watching it. Mm. And um, I think one of the dangers of doom scrolling is that we're not built to consume bad news this consistently. Yeah. And so when that happens, that leads to apathy, mm -hmm. which is really dangerous to movements like Black Lives Matter yeah. that need our longevity. They mm. need us to consistently be engaged and involved as they mm. should. But we can't do that if we are feeling apathetic, if we have a lack of interest, enthusiasm, concern. It's really dangerous. Mm. And so we have to build ourselves up so that we can take breaks when we need to so that we're not burnt out because yeah. this movement needs our commitment. I feel like we kind of went in a circle with, it was like a vicious cycle of wanting to constantly be on social so that the outrage didn't die down because when the outrage dies down, so does the momentum of the mm. movement. And we've seen that now because, you know, we've taken steps back and we've become not less outraged per se, but less involved or less... Um, overtly outraged mm. and as a result the movement has died down Absolutely. and we didn't want this to just be another 2020 trend but at the same time because we were constantly on socials I know for myself I began I began to become a bit apathetic and I would see you know posts and I wouldn't even bother to read them anymore because mm. I was just like quite frankly like I just can't stomach it anymore like I don't care anymore right mm. now like I just can't um, and I feel as though had we maybe use hindsight <laughs> at the beginning of the situation and kind of regulate it a bit more. Like, I do feel like the movement might have lasted a bit longer worldwide. Mm. Not to mention, considering the climate we're in at the moment, like coronavirus, this is the first time our generation has had to deal with a lockdown and not being able to go anywhere. Mm. That also would have impacted our mental health, being stuck at home all the time. And it, being stuck at home made it so we had to watch it because there was yeah. nothing else to watch what anyway. To There's no other things. There was only work in uni and that was it. I also want to say that I think, you know, given that they were having this conversation as three people who were affected by the movement, it is okay, if not critical, that we take time off. Yeah. And it, it shouldn't be up to us to be gatekeepers of the movement. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be up to us to remind non-black people every day, hey, are you caring about this? Are you still with us? That's not our job, especially because why I love Audre Lorde's quote so much is the fact that, you know, when we come from these political identities or these kind of, kind of marginalized identities where our existence are often defined by resistance and, you know, resilience, us just existing on a day-to-day -day basis is inherently political. It is a form of activism and rebellion. I mean, you consider the fact that even when we're not dealing with a movement, you're battling microaggressions that people are telling you. Mm. There's no way that we can clock out from the conversation. Mm, yeah. So if you don't hear us on Instagram, that's not because we've decided mm. we don't care about racism every, anymore. Not when we live through we, it. <laughs> we don't have that choice to tap yeah. out. And so we need to create longevity. Mm -hmm. Whereas people who are protected by other forms of privilege, whether that's racial or any other form of privilege, they they don't they get to tap out mm -hmm. which is exactly why they need to stay tapped in mm -hmm. because they can at the end of the day log off and not be affected by yeah, this they can exactly. disconnect from the conversation and their lives will no other like mm -hmm. will not be infected they can disconnect from the conversation without any sort of negative repercussions yeah. their life is going to remain the same mm -hmm. it's not going to be their family their friends or their community that is being shot in the street mm -hmm. Which is why it is important for them to stay engaged because they are protected by forms of privilege yeah. and they can afford to contribute to this movement in a way that isn't so emotionally and personally taxing. Mm -hmm. 
So that leads me to my next question and really the theme of this particular episode. In times like this, what brings you joy when you're fighting for social justice? Can you think of maybe three things? And I think some of us have neglected that. And so it's okay <laughs> if the answer is nothing. But have there been any particular coping mechanisms that you use to get through this time? Or even now as we're um, just kind of processing and dealing with the last two to three months, what has been bringing you joy? Um, I think for me, especially because um, my kind of year has been just very messy having to like move back from London during a pandemic um and then coming home to a civil rights movement (laughs) I um wasn't finding joy in much like my mental health suffered severely during this period but being able to kind of like have conversations like this with friends um and just be around kind of other people's energy um whether it be people or actually no more so people who were going through the same thing as me um and just knowing that when I'm with those friends I'm in a safe space and I don't need to do the most and I don't need to educate people and I don't need to you know be outraged um for everyone because everyone who I'm with is equally as outraged, equally as educated, equally as aware as I am. Um, so those kind of safe spaces have definitely, definitely, you know, helped a lot this year. But other than that, I mean, Netflix, Stan, <laughs> <laughs> all of it. <laughs> um, how about for you, friend? I reckon, yeah, probably the same. I'm getting more of a sense of a strong black community that's starting to grow now like especially through instagram i can mm-hmm. see like just seeing others posts about it just makes me so much more happy when i'm like yes i'm not the only one and i say that because i come from a i'm from the north shore a very white neighborhood i'm used to being the only black person in the year group if not the school so i can never really go to anyone to talk about these sort of mm-hmm. things and without having to be educating them so i think this it's made it a lot easier to talk about these things but um, as for other things, I was trying to do yoga. I was just doing YouTube YouTube tutorials, finding whatever YouTube tutorials I do, like a 15 to half an hour before I go to bed or if I woke up. Um, oh, my exercising kind of, kind of fell off during that time. <laughs> but that could also, you know, exercise also does help. But I also have been starting to get into art mm. and all of that sort of stuff. Like I've always said I want to do more creative things. And this year I'm like, well... now is the time to do it there's no more excuses and yeah just trying to make more time for myself because I'm just constantly grinding and never have a break so yeah definitely well and truly time for you (laughs) absolutely I'm proud of you for finally taking that time I hate that it kind of takes a pandemic Mm. and it takes you know civil rights movement but if there was ever a time to really load up on the self-care it's now Um, for me I mean kind of back to when we were talking about that stress the stress has had of the movement has and other things I guess have unfortunately had really negative consequences on my physical and mental health um, that will be long term and so I'm really trying to focus on that self care and mm-hmm. for me um, it's definitely been relying on community and you know for context for our listeners I'm sitting here with Binta and Francoise up until I met um, Binta at. 17, Francoise was my only black friend, <laughs> and that's because our parents, two black women, um, you know, knew each other before we were both born, mm. um, so I'm so grateful to have had Francoise in my life, um, and then I met Binta at 17, and until maybe a year after meeting Binta, they were my only two black friends. 
now thank goodness a beautiful community has emerged and there's something really lovely about being able to go to lunch or have live conversations on Instagram or going to parties with girls who just get it and Mm -hmm. are there for one another Um, I think for me it was like indulging in self care and I think a lot of that was going to therapy which I really advocate for people I I want the normalisation of therapy and I think society is moving towards it which is good Uh so there's a lot less stigma around it as there there should be no stigma around it so if you needed a nudge to go please go Um, I've been in I've been in and out of different forms of therapy for three years now, so there's really no shame in that, and it's been a really positive um, influence in my life. Um, you know, going to get my hair done in an all-black salon and being treated with love and care by someone who knows how to do my hair was such a beautiful experience. Um, and then I also just think one thing I want to touch on, because I think it's a really valid form of self-care that is often looked down upon from a gendered perspective is escaping into fandom. So for me, that's, you know, talking about, you know, celebrities that I love or artists that I love with friends, rewatching favorite TV shows that are nostalgic yes. and that aren't inherently political so that you can just escape you into sort safe. of mindless TV shows, which is, this is a really side note and I'm not gonna talk about it for long because we're already cracking into our time. It's why like when people make fun of women for, for watching reality TV shows, when it's like, we need reality TV shows the most. We need mindless TV. I love Minecraft TV. Right? I need my trash That doesn't TV. mean yeah. it's dumb. And that <laughs> doesn't mean that our interests aren't serious. It means that considering we are contending with sexism, racism, homophobia, and other sorts of oppression in our day-to-day lives, mm. give us a minute to just catch a break yeah. and indulge in some mindless entertainment because we deserve it. I agree. Um... This was actually a question that we gave to our listeners, and I think there were some really awesome responses. I've just left a couple there, and I was wondering if you guys would like to take turns reading some of the responses. Just choose some that you like. We maybe want to do three to four. Thank you so much to everybody who sent in some answers. Um, I will start us off. So, um, lovely.mle said that when they need to find joy during social justice, they like to watch silly videos, call with friends, they like sewing and gardening, and working with their hands. <laughs> nice. That's sweet. Another user, his handle is Coles Weber, or he or she, um, said seeing youths getting involved in ways that previous gens never did. And I think that's really... Mm, that's really... And made me think true. of a poster that I saw at the protest, and it was like, Gen Z, Gen Z is coming for your old man. And I just think yes. that's so accurate. I love our generation. I love our of them. Because We're think, amazing. We are amazing. I think we will be the change. I'm hoping uh-huh. we will be the change. I already see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my Jojo FR said, surrounding myself with people who take the time and energy to listen to me, surrounding mm-hmm. myself with nature, listening to music that makes me less alone. Um, which I definitely, yeah, agree with. I feel like spending time with people who listen as opposed to people who don't really makes all the difference, mm. especially when, you know, you're a black woman. It's not nice to be silenced and then be a black woman on top of yeah. it. <laughs> Amen. Um, user Panina Dalton had a response that I really loved. She said, being an ally, when you're fighting for a cause that directly impacts you, it can feel like you're screaming and nobody can hear you. When you're an ally, you're in a, you're in the position where you can tell others you were heard. I will change. I will do better, and I'm here to support you. Which I just thought was so lovely because yeah. those are the things we really want to hear when we're in the midst of all of this. And it's really lovely that she finds joy in being that bearer of good news for other people. So mm. I really liked that response. Thank you, Panina. She put it in such a nice way too. Yeah, yeah. I feel comforted yeah. by that comment. Thank you for being an ally. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, do you guys want to give two more or one more? Sure. I will give LB with three Ys. <laughs> when someone mentions that a specific resource or something I said really resonated with them or helped them change their thinking, even if it's just a bit, mm. I resonate with that 100%. Yeah, that's so Knowing that's something that you took the time to share or even write resonated yeah. with other people really does make it feel like you're doing kind of you're fighting the good fight i felt mm. that especially because like all through july and stuff i was just posting stuff on insta just like educational mm. things and so many people were replying be like wow thanks for this and then they would share it and that would always make me feel like oh see it's getting mm. through to some people um so another user i'm not sure how to pronounce it but it's o-w-r-u-g-o um, so donating to multiple organizations has felt calming in a sense because I know it is a tangible way I can actually make a difference. Witnessing so many people take action and take a stand against the injustices. People who speak up in the uncomfortable situations when no one else will and those all bring me joy. I love that. Mm. Thank you guys for sharing those with us. They were really beautiful. Mm. I think going back to that quote I read at the start, you know, Audrey's words perfectly articulate why the pursuit of joy is something that should be considered both critical and urgent. By examining joy, or as she says, self-preservation, within the context of political movements, she almost kind of radicalizes it. And I think it's important to look at the pursuit of joy as being radical, because ultimately without the ability to persevere, we can't contribute to movements that require our longevity and our sustained efforts. And as history has proven, it is possible that we are still fighting our ancestors' battles while simultaneously enjoying the fruits of their labor. So presumably the same can be said for the generations who will come after us, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, particularly when we're advocating and fighting for justice and equality that can only be achieved through structural change, and that doesn't come easy, especially when we're still just trying to teach mm -hmm. basic concepts as we spoke about before, it's like when we're aware that our struggle has and will continue to span multiple history books, our commitment can't really be dependent on the expectation that the needed long-term change will occur in the short term, because otherwise we're just bound for failure. Mm. We have to be hopeful and optimistic, but we also have to be realistic or else we risk being unprepared and burnt out. So I guess I just wondered, like, how can you reconcile that the work that we're doing is stressful, but can only be achieved when we prioritize our well-being, especially because if we keep in mind the end goal of this movement. The end goal is to secure greater liberation and joy for our community, as well as other important structural changes that will make that more feasible. So how do we reconcile that? It's a really a hard one. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it goes to what I was saying before about being stuck in a vicious cycle of burning yourself out because you want to fight as good as you can. And then having to take a lot more time for yourself and not being able to contribute as much. Um, I feel as though self-care is very underrated in this um, day and age, do you know what I mean? I feel like especially when it comes to things like this, those who take time for themselves and distance themselves are almost seen as not caring mm. or you know, not as politically engaged, not as worthy for the cause. Um, so I feel like when it comes to trying to find a balance between acknowledging that this is a stressful fight, but it'll only be a successful fight if we prioritize our well-being, um, it comes to practice. Really, we're not gonna we're not gonna stop fighting this fight anytime soon. It's gonna last a lifetime, and over time, we will learn that our well-being should be our number one priority. But 
it doesn't suffice to just tell people that they need to look after themselves. They really need to feel the consequences of when they don't, um, which is what happened to us this year. And that's why, you know, now I'm going to therapy and like Mm -hmm. we all understood the consequences of what happens when we think that we can outsmart our body Mm -hmm. and we can outsmart, you know, our capacities. Um, So we just got to practice trials and tribulations, practice, get up again, try again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really like that. Yeah, I agree with that too. And then only really learning it now and even still I've got to learn, yeah, I've got to teach myself to just take breaks. Mm. So, yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. Because mm-hmm. you have hard. to think, you, you just keep thinking, you have to keep going, keep going. But, Absolutely. You know, yeah, you've got to take a break. And I think, you know, it's a lesson that we're all learning through trial and error. But I think... Um, something beautiful to remember is that when we forget to do that for ourselves our girlfriends usually remind us mm-hmm. um youtube beauties reminded me that hopefully i can be here to remind you that and that's why it's so important to have a community who understand you because sometimes we slip up because we're yeah. human and we're still learning so it's really important to have that community to remind you you can't afford to be burnt out but if you do hey i'm here what mm-hmm. can we do to make you feel better i guess kind of continuing on from that when you kind of look at self-care or the pursuit of joy from this sort of radical and necessary perspective, where it can ultimately be defined as both an act of rebellion and an intentional and deliberate investment in the self, that with that we can't really dismantle structures unless we have that sort of investment, it kind of becomes obvious that the way society looks at self-care is absolutely not from that perspective, <laughs> you know? Self-care today has been commodified into a sort of buzzword that businesses have exploited. Mm. And, you know, some governments have kind of made quite inaccessible. Mm. And it's it's being commercialized to a point where it's often only available to the privileged. Yeah. Its marketing is steeped in whiteness. And it puts money straight into the wallets of organizations that profit from our insecurities or contribute to oppression. But in reality, self-care isn't always palatable. It's often hard and challenging, and it should be. Mm. So how do we find a way to indulge in the more digestible forms of self-care, like pedicures, massages, or expensive drinks? You know, forms of self-care that we're often um, sold. told, we're often yeah. sold, exactly, while still advocating for more pressing and urgent forms of self-preservation, like maintaining boundaries, calling mm. your therapist, mm. or going to that medical appointment you've been putting off for weeks. How do we do the important dirty work? Don't talk to me about the medical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting it off for weeks. Literally saying I have to go to the doctor, but we do. We just keep going. Um, I feel as though when you can reach a level of self-awareness where you recognize that you're burnt out, that you're you know suffering through whatever, whether you're you know going through mental turmoil, or whatever, it is really not too hard to kind of just take a step back and be like, no, I actually need to kind of get down to the nitty gritty form of self-care, um, which is what happened when I started going to therapy. Mm. I re- realized bubble bust and, mm. <laughs> you know, binge watching TV and like, you know, making art isn't going to fix mm. this. Like I do need yeah. to like go seek help. Um, and I feel like there's power in that for me Absolutely. in any case. And though I can still enjoy going out with my friends and, you know, um, pampering myself and things like that, those are all temporary happiness. Yeah. Whereas the um, kind of palpable change that you receive when you go to things like therapy mm. or when you have conversations with people that aren't always easy to have, mm. that's that's literally priceless. Like, yeah. the lessons that you learn through going to therapy and other forms of it, um, they stay with you for life and they change the way you interact with yourself and you interact with others and the way you face stressful situations which we have many more to face in our lifetime so yeah 
I found like over the last couple of months, I've definitely been like self-reflecting as well. Beautiful. It's good to like, I don't know, just think about how far you've come, where you've come and how you've gotten to this exact spot that you're in now. So I think it's always good to like think about that, whether that be you keep a journal or just literally just thinking about it. So, and like, I like that saying of like dating yourself sort of thing, Mm. like take yourself out. Like, you know, I just went for a walk for myself and that was great. Like sometimes you need a break from people in general and Mm. you just need to be by yourself. And I think being a lockdown especially highlighted that because you know, you're constantly around your family constantly. Yeah. So I think, people definitely need to learn to be happy with themselves yeah. by themselves. Absolutely. And yeah. it's it's also just kind of that thing about being a critical consumer because it's like massages are wonderful, mm-hmm. but if your problem is that you're suffering from intense migraines, <laughs> you know, a massage is only going to do so much. Yeah. Or, you know, if your problem is that you're constantly exhausted because you can't sleep, because you're anxious, you're stressed, or, you know, whatever other reasons mm. contributing to your lack of sleep. A face mask. A face mask doesn't help. Oh, you know, it's it, it does help, but it is not, it's not the most pressing the solution. It's like putting a band-aid it's, it's on a band-aid, a band-aid, you know. Netflix might tell you the solution is staying up all night binging and that feels really good in the short term but that actually contributes to the problem and so it's just being critical of the forms of self-care that we're sold which are valid forms of self-care but they shouldn't be the only forms of self-care that we implement we have to be willing to do that dirty work be accountable to ourselves and to just go to that appointment you know Mm -hmm. have those conversations that are icky because in the end it pays off I think people are also scared to confront themselves in a way. People don't want to learn about themselves and why they're like this. Uh, Yeah, they don't want to open up that can. That can because it's scary and it's the hard work takes a long time. It's Mm. not an immediate fix. You know, a face mask feels like an immediate fix, Mm -hmm. and that's what we want in this society. We want immediacy. We want what. We want what we want the minute we want yeah. it. Mm. Um, I also think it's really important to note that our personal self-care routines should not be a substitute for structural self-care. Mm-hmm. The onus shouldn't be on us as individuals to meet all of our needs. Because <laughs> if our physiological and safety needs aren't being fulfilled, and they aren't always, then how can we be expected to reach our full joy or our full potential? In fact, it's actually for that reason that I think that Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I know that's kind of corny, but it's actually a great starting point for activists dealing with burnout but you know obviously in order to meet our most basic needs we need governments and workplaces to make that possible Mm -hmm. for everybody because if we neglect the responsibility that they have to make our quality of life good then suddenly we're at fault for being depressed because oh you didn't go get a massage you didn't do this like you know when we're burnt out or anxious suddenly because it's what we did or didn't do which I don't think it's okay because mm. it's not always that. And so I just wanted to directly quote a good friend of mine who I was speaking to about burnout and mental illness because she said something that to me was so profound. She said this, you're an animal whose needs are not being met. So it is not your fault. This is a completely normal psychological response to extreme amounts of stress. And to me, that just like, wow, I stopped feeling guilty about feeling really shit mentally and physically because the society that we live in is inherently stressful and there are things that aren't being done that could make things easy for us as human beings to live our lives. And so I wanted to throw that to you guys and ask, how how can we make sure our basic needs are being met or what do you need from societies, governments and workplaces? to ensure that before we're even talking about, you know, the top of that pyramid, our most basic needs are being fulfilled. I think businesses, I think taking mental health days Mm. off 
needs to be more normalized like yeah. i reckon this is the first year where businesses have been like stay home if you're sick like, this mm, is the first absolutely. time they've actually believed you when you want to pull a sick day yeah but i think we shouldn't even have to say that we're just sick we should just have to say we need a break a break and can't come into work and, come into work. and exactly. they need to find staff to fill in, in for you so mm-hmm. i think yeah that needs to be more normalized even with school uh, school stressful for kids and they should be able to take a day off and it not being oh well they're skipping out on school and yeah. blah blah like it just needs to be more normalized for people to take a day to themselves every now and then 100 i feel as though workplaces and the government need to start treating their citizens and their workers as humans mm. rather than as kind of these objects of productivity <laughs> and <laughs> cash flow yeah exactly mm-hmm. and you know it's been it's been very obvious this year that like we are not valued in this country as people and i don't just mean as black women i just mm. mean as people mm-hmm. this country does not value it's us they value before the, people yeah. exactly it's profits before people and you can't you can't maintain good self-care mm. if you know your workplace and your entire government is against you looking after yourself so the obviously way- it's Hiring. The way the government handled this virus goes to show that it's the economy over the people. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe Australia should have gone, locked the international borders two weeks before it happened, but oh no, it was about the travel companies and bloody, mm-hmm. bloody, blah. Same with the reason why we're not in lockdown again, it's because yeah. it's about the economy. Whereas you look at New Zealand, they get four cases and she's shut down, locked down. Exactly. They don't want any of like Because they value their people, and I feel as though we should be valued as like this country is not a business do you know what i mean it's a country these are people's homes some people yeah. exist in the confines of this big island um i don't want to work to live i don't want to work to live is i want to live to work live- no i want to no, work no, to live. Live. <laughs> i don't yeah. want to live to work i want to work to live exactly really yeah but i just don't want to work full stop but we move yeah um, but i feel as though you know self-care <laughs> yeah. the fact that self-care isn't you know considered a valid form of being sick or like not coming into mm. work that's incredibly damaging because people feel if they need to take a mental health day they need to lie about it mm. and you know lying doesn't make anyone feel good unless you're like a sociopath so mm. i feel as though <laughs> unless the workplaces and the government start destigmatizing mental health and start you know acknowledging that sometimes people get burned out they're not meant to work five days a week yeah. nine to five for what like 52 weeks a year like it's insane for 52 Um, years exactly like no one comes into that this world wanting to do that Mm -hmm. and when they get burnt out doing it you can't hold them you know you can't hold them to the fire and blame them for Mm -hmm. it and make them feel guilty and i also feel like when once those changes are implemented and you know there is kind of proper policy implemented talking about taking mental health days even talking about taking like days where you have your period off yes. like, the fact that I or we all still have to go to work when our uterine wall is shedding <laughs> is appalling and it makes me so incredibly mad because had a man been going through the same thing as us they would have their period days off but we have to go through with it and I don't think people understand how painful yeah. it is to be stood up having to do a job that you really don't like that much while you're literally cramping up like it's horrible but until you know those types of changes are implemented in the forms of policies we're not gonna we're not gonna see any kind of like widespread self-care it's Mm -hmm. always gonna be these little oh i'll do a face mask after work i'll do this i'll do that because you can't take the time and we're all avoiding having this more serious conversation about how we deal in general with mental health and the fact that it's 
no, it's it shouldn't be normal for no. mental illness to be so widespread mm. in society but it, unfortunately it is normal to have mental illness in a society that is not meeting your needs and mm. society as we know it right now is not meeting all of our needs and I think that I mean obviously we come from a privileged country Australia but I know not yeah. every country has access to free healthcare yeah. um, we need to have student support we need to have all these sorts of kind of structural changes that can help people deal with burnout and mental illness. Um, I think that's really important. I mean, you know, just as an example, I'm going to see a specialist for, you know, a kind of um, a physical issue tomorrow that was caused by stress mm. and I have to pay $400 for it. And, mm. um, you know, I'm lucky that right now I'm in the position to afford that, but not everybody can. Do that. And that, you know, that shouldn't dictate who has access to healthcare or not. And we're in a fairly privileged country. Mm. Um, I think one thing I want to mention is that a lot of, um, as we were talking about the sort of commercialization of self-care, it's often tied to a profit, it's tied to capitalistic companies who often are the reason that we need self-care mm-hmm. in the first place. So I just wanted to ask you guys, what are some free or more affordable ways of practicing self-care that are more accessible to the majority of the population? Um, in Australia in particular, I can't really speak for the rest of the world, um, through Medicare you can get you know, free or subsidized mental health care plan, mm-hmm. which offers like free or subsidized therapy. Um, you only get 10 sessions, but it's a lot better than nothing in therapy costs a bomb. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so if you can even get a subsidy or get it free, it's definitely something that, you know, you should look into. Um, otherwise, I feel as though, especially our generation has just realized that if we want something done, we have to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, like, looking after my mental health really does kind of take form in like how I look after my mm-hmm. body, my mm-hmm. vessel. Um, and if I'm, I know that if I'm not looking after my body properly, my mental health is going to suffer mm-hmm. as a result. Yeah. So, you know, um, just getting out, going for walks, exercising, mm-hmm. watching like YouTube videos, doing some Chloe Ting workouts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she always comes through. Um, and ensuring that I'm kind of doing things that make me happy and that are feeding my soul Mm. so not like short-term happiness like watching Netflix and things like that but rather substantive happiness that when I'm done doing that I'm going to be like yeah I'm glad I did that it really Mm -hmm. made me feel better I feel the same way like I was thinking about how me and my friends when we were younger in high school whenever we had a sleepover it was all about like watching movies and all that but nowadays when I organize to do things with my friends we like to go for walks Mm -hmm. and how so different from childhood and I really appreciate like we're lucky that in Australia we have really nice coastal walks and stuff like that like the other day I did Rose Bay to Watson's Bay I think it is and that was a good 10k walk by the end of it and it was, I just felt so good after that yeah. and just being away from the screen and the computer really makes a difference and I think like I was saying before the yoga like there's so much on YouTube that you can find mm. that's free and accessible and yeah exercising reading I really want to get back into reading, reading because reading has fallen off because of uni because the amount of stuff we already yeah. have to read but I just miss the enjoyment of reading of a good book and I think that's where my mental health has slipped was because that was mm. such a good hobby that we loved doing and I'm so that was sad so myself. crucial to our childhood joy to our, yeah so much of our childhood was books mm-hmm. and I want to get back to that and I think more people should read more people should utilize their local libraries because yeah. obviously it can be expensive to constantly be buying books use your libraries yeah. um, I look at my bookshelf and I'm like that's like Probably five grand just sitting on that bookshelf. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Reading is such a, for me, is a beautiful source of joy. I kind of echo your sentiments, love going for walks. And for me, that's one because it's time 
outside of my head it's time off screen I'm mm-hmm. a huge advocate for that even though I don't put that in practice as much as I would like mm-hmm. um, for me it's such a mood booster seeing a beautiful blue sky and getting yeah. some sunlight and some fresh air yeah. is like to me the benefits of that on my mind body and spirit is almost tangible Mm. um i would also say cleaning your room yes i like cleaning cleaning a room it's one of those forms of self-care that isn't pretty but actually almost has immediate effects yeah and like i said you can listen to a podcast while you do it so yes um it's free to talk to your loved one or your friend about how you're feeling Mm. or even if you don't want to talk about how you're feeling to ask them to distract you or just sit with you yeah um Hug your friend if you're able to do so in a way that is COVID safe. I think there are some mm-hmm. really beautiful kind of free ways to do that. Mm. So my next question, and we just kind of want to speed through this a little bit is, do you think self-care is gendered? Because obviously we're used to as women having that conversation, but we don't talk about men's mental health as much. And I know that's a completely separate conversation, but do you think it's gendered and should it be? I don't think that the concept of self-care itself is gendered. I don't think that there is a specific way that a man or someone who identifies as a man should conduct self-care and that would be different from the way a woman would conduct self-care and that they would have different effects but I do feel like societally speaking self-care is definitely gendered I feel like men who indulge in even the you know kind of commercial forms of self-care we were talking about getting pampered doing face masks and things like that are kind of labeled as effeminate and you know yeah weak and overly emotional um and i feel as though men really don't get the luxury of having overt self-care as we do Mm. um like a lot of men just bottle up their feelings or they're told to just go exercise and work out and that's why a lot of them have so much pent-up aggression um because it has nowhere to go like men don't go to therapy as often as women because it's heavily stigmatized Mm. for men even more so than women um they don't they just don't. <laughs> they just yeah. don't indulge in as much self-care as women do. Mm-hmm. And I understand why, and it's a shame. Um, and I hope that over time this can be normalised because men need self-care as much as women. Yeah, like, Amen. come on, pop on a face mask. There's Go on. <laughs> Have a bath. Like, I don't I, know... Uh, I just don't see why it has to be an issue for men to do this. I mm-hmm. wish this, there wasn't a stigma. I think we do a it. huge, huge disservice to men mm-hmm. by pretending like their mental health doesn't matter and, like self-care isn't just as much as a priority for them Mm -hmm. i also just wanted to kind of quickly flip the switch a little bit and i wanted to know um what has been a really memorable or really lovely impactful way that people have shown you support during tough times i mean for me i've been really blessed but i can think of two ways that two um two allies (laughs) have shown me support and that was two beautiful non-black friends who when i was really stressed during the movement one of them sent me flowers by surprise with a beautiful note to my doorstep and another one baked me muffins and that sort of stuff was just, I could have cried. It was just such a beautiful way of just being like, I'm here, I get that things are stressful for you right now, here is something to boost your day. And to me that really means a lot. And so I'm wondering if you guys have any experiences like that um, of ways that you have appreciated people have showed you support that maybe our listeners can take note of when they want to show somebody else support or maybe it will make them think of times that they've been blessed to receive similar treatment. I really appreciated it when people would reply to the content I was putting on stories and stuff and being like, yeah, thanks for putting this up because it really has opened my eyes to these sort of issues that made me realise that, oh, maybe people do want to learn and I'm not just shouting to into a void. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had 
a friend from back in high school who we kind of had a falling out and she apologised about the way she used to joke around with me. She did used to use the N-word so and stuff like that. She was holding wow. herself accountable. She was holding herself accountable. And I did see posts of her at the protest. And when I saw that, it kind of made me a little vexed because <laughs> I was like, I know what you're really like. I put it down to immaturity as well, though. Like, I wouldn't say she was vindictive or anything. Mm. It was just we were young. This is back in, like, year 7, 8, 9, 10. It stays but, with you, though. Yeah, but it still stayed with you. And clearly it stayed with her. Because I never said anything about it. I never tell anyone off for saying it because I'm just like, it reflects you, not me. Mm. So I really appreciated her reflecting on her actions and coming to me and apologising. And, yeah, I thought that was really great. I think it also highlighted, the movement also highlighted friends who didn't do enough as well. Mm. And friends that, was, that just weren't. They yeah, hello people have been cancelled yeah. this year. Which is not like. part of that trauma. Yeah, like close friends too. You're also dealing mm. with the fallout yeah. of friendships that are just no longer serving you. Because yeah. they're just too uncomfortable to talk about it. And yeah, I won't put them on blast. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just your silence <laughs> is noted. And yeah. clearly we're not as tight as I thought we were. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I was also, I also, they were also a bit quiet in as we were talking about earlier about the no power thing that also showed me who was supporting me like we had neighbors who really showed up and helped us during those times and then we had people that did jackal so this year has really shown me the real the real yeah this year has really shown me what people are really like that's Mm -hmm. for sure Mm -hmm. um i think for me I haven't had like an overt amount of support, which is why I've said a a lot of my close friends just simply, I don't rate them anymore. Mm. Um, When I did get back to um, Sydney, so this was a tiny bit before, like it was as things were heating up, a friend delivered me flowers to my hotel room when I was in quarantine. And that was really sweet. And having, you know, friends um, check in on me randomly just to see how I'm doing. I had one girl who... Um, we're not close at all actually um, but she messaged me and she was just like hey I've been thinking of you I hope you're doing okay I'm um, yeah, not that she's why and I really appreciated that because it was like mm. that's all you really that's like all that, that's all that yeah, yeah. yeah. I just appreciate I appreciate the thought um, and knowing that there are some friends out there who do you know like support and more so recognize how hard of a time this is for black people mm. um and obviously having like people like sunny um who every time we would talk would just be like girl <laughs> like that's that's a form of ser- therapy in itself. <laughs> so those are the things i'm grateful Thank for you. i didn't get muffins though i'm kind of vexed about that i know one thing i also just really came to mind is that i have a beautiful friend who um you know who could recognize it was a tough time for me who called me on the day of the protest and said, you know, I can completely tell that this is important to you. And she came with me to the protest. And at a time where so many friends that I had for such a long term time really disappointed me by not being there for me, it it honestly meant the world to me and just almost brought me to tears. So that was just such a beautiful sentiment. She sounds like a great... Um, That was the same for me. Literally, I have a friend who we're only just becoming close now, but we don't know each other very well. And we only know each other through festivals and raves. And yet she was so keen... (laughs) So he came to come with me. She's like, oh, when are we going? I, I want to meet up. Let's go. Let's go. Whereas none of my mm-hmm. close friends would even offer yeah. to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, seriously? Like, how come someone I barely know mm-hmm. yeah. is yeah. willing to, one, put their life at risk with coronavirus mm-hmm. to go and support me? With friendship, it yeah. is quality over quantity. 100%. But guys, that is the energy that we want. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> All day, every day. So, 
I kind of, okay, I'm going to speed through these last two questions. We've kind of touched on this one, but I just want one tangible promise to yourself right now that I can hold you guys accountable That's to. That's a bit confronting. It's Moving forward, can you name one way that you will be advocating for yourself and your joy? Because I will be knocking on your doorsteps if... I know you will. You already do. What are you talking about? It's like, I hope you're getting your rest. I'm like, exactly. I'm not. You don't need to know that. She's always like, bitch, when are you going to take a day off work? You're working too much. And I'm like, okay, relax. That is me. So what is one... This is a promise to yourself right now that I want you to keep. And I'm going to be reminding you. These listeners, if they find you, better be reminding you. What I'll up in my DMs. One, what is one tangible way that you will, moving forward, be advocating for yourself and your joy? Um, I've already started implementing this just through kind of like the past year um, because it definitely has like kind of made me think about like my relationship with people I've just set boundaries if you don't say something I like or if I simply don't want to talk to you I don't feel the need I'm done with the niceties if I don't I don't know if we're allowed to swear but if I don't like you or if I don't feel like engaging with you on a certain <laughs> day, then I simply won't and I don't owe you an answer as mm. to why. I will cut you off. Mm. I will. And you don't need a reason because oh. I don't owe you a reason. I don't I owe you a reply. I'm quick with my cutoffs. So honestly, you get three chances and by then done. Like, three, that's that's generous. generous. That's generous. At this point, it's like true. if you're not giving the energy that I'm giving to you, yeah. I will give you the same energy back. If you're being yeah. a bad friend, I will be a non-existent friend. Actually, I'll do I, you one better. I actually feel that. No, I've, I've had that with a friend recently, yeah. And I'm just like, I've just realised that she mm-hmm. always comes to me for her problems but never wants to listen about mine. Nah, or if, or if cut I it. come with her with my problems, she has to double it. Oh, I had, I, I see. No, cut no, it! Bye. So, okay. So for Vinta, we are promising to ourselves to reciprocate the energy that we get mm. and to give these heifers one chance and one chance only. One chance. Francois, what's on the menu for you? Um, I think I need to reduce the amount of hours I work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm on my fourth job now. No, I need to, I need to quit one job for one. Um, and yeah, just not be afraid to just take a mental health day for sure. And just, yeah, especially with one of my managers, like, over the years, she's definitely overworked me, especially when I'm trying to have a good uni balance as well. Mm-hmm. I think I just need to take the initiative and just be like, no, find somebody else. Yeah. So for Francoise, we are vowing to have better workplace boundaries and to have a plate that is less full and more manageable. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that for you, ladies. Yeah. What about um, you, Sunny? Yeah. <laughs> you can't let um, yourself out. Um, okay, I think one. <laughs> he said, I'm out of here. I kind of have two. I think one is allowing myself to be more transparent to others of like, if I feel like I really want to see them, but right, I'm just in a mental rut, then being transparent about that because You're it gives... You're very saying that. Hey, because that also I find gives permission to other people to do the same. And I want my friends to know that they can do that when they're communicating with me. So I need to lead by example. Um, and also just being more comfortable passing the baton to others. I'm a control freak. I feel like I always have to be the, at the center of every narrative, have to have control. And, you know, I think it's okay for me to take a... It's okay for me to take a step back and to let um, people who are feeling stronger and more educated in that moment, um, let them carry a little bit of the load, essentially. 
Uh, I think that's what I empowered for myself. Mm-hmm. Amen. 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 Um, this is my very last question. It's so sad to bring this conversation to a close. But, you know, lastly, because these heifers try to steal our joy and pride <laughs> so damn often, what do you love about being a young black woman? Everything. Everything. <laughs> Everything. I would literally give a leg to be a black woman in my next life. I love it. It's amazing. The strength, resilience, loving nature, the maturity and fun and just everything about us. The art we create, like culture, the culture, the hair, the, the community especially community, the I just love seeing black people come together and having fun like that is my most joy like mm-hmm. whether it just be you know listening to hip hop and jamming yes. like we're all dancing together that brings me so much joy mm-hmm. and I just feel like yeah I just wouldn't trade that up for the world no amen it's a really really beautiful gift and I'm I'm glad that I get to share that experience with you too um, and I really thank you for joining me on this conversation today Thank you for having um, me. I thank the beautiful co-producers of this podcast for giving me this platform and this opportunity. And I hope that for listeners out there, black or not, female or male or non-binary, that this resonated with you. Um, but that concludes our discussion today. So thank you. And I will be holding you guys accountable. <laughs> right back at so you. <laughs> moving forward. See right. Bye, guys. A very special thanks to Sunny, Francoise, and Binta for contributing so much needed joy to our podcast. This episode of Rebelliously Tiny was hosted and written by Sunny Adcock. You can find more of her work on her blog, asunnyspot.com.au, or follow her on Instagram at sunny underscore adcock and Twitter at a underscore sunnyspot. We'll put all the links in the episode description. This episode was recorded remotely in Australia and Canada and edited by me, ambivalently yours. It was produced by Hannah McCaslin and I, and the music is by Greg Barkley. Thanks for listening.